Alrighty. <clears throat> so this is our last Sunday that we're going to be in John's gospel for a while. So we're going to take a break and then come January of 2024, right? Is that what's next, right? We will be jumping back into the gospel of John. And so today we finish what has been called the book of signs, right? John 1 through 12 is the book of signs. And so with that, let's jump in. Before we look at our text, my daughter, she had a piano recital last week. She worked really hard for months. She practiced almost every day, sometimes willingly, sometimes not so much. And when the day came, she picked out a dress and she looked beautiful. I mean, she looked gorgeous. You've seen her. She's beautiful. Her grandparents and cousins all came to see her play. The place was pretty crowded. So I was actually standing in the back. But when she got up on the stage, I made my way up to a seat in the center aisle so I could have a clear view of her. And I just stared at her with this smile painted across my face, probably looking like a fool. Um, she did a great job. She really did. It was so great. Like, my heart was just overflowing with joy and gratitude. I love that she plays piano. She's so cute. It's all the things. But let's imagine, let's imagine that after putting all of that work in, day after day, practicing, picking out the perfect dress, she gets up on the stage and she looks out and she sees me in the back staring down at my phone. Maybe even laughing at a conversation. Now, imagine, right? That's not what I did. This is an imaginary story. And when she finishes, I say to her, it sounded like you missed a few notes. That would have destroyed her, right? That would have destroyed her. The passage we're looking at this morning has a similar feel. Although the primary difference, and there are many, is that the story of Jesus and the signs he performed throughout his earthly ministry, so that we might believe that he is the Christ, they were actually orchestrated in such a way to bring about judgment on the people of Israel. Because they weren't paying attention. They weren't impressed while also simultaneously swinging wide open the door so that the nations might enter into the presence of God. The story we have been working through in these first 12 chapters of John's Gospel, the book of signs, is the story of God ushering in new creation through the word made flesh. Now, what did that all look like? Well, it began back in the first chapter, when John captured all of our imaginations by drawing our attention back to the first words of creation, in the beginning. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Then we learn a little while later on that the Word, who was both God and in the beginning with God, that he became flesh and he dwelt among us. And a pause there for just a minute. By becoming flesh and dwelling among us, Jesus is dipping his toes into the waters of humiliation. He's dipping his toes into the waters of humiliation. But, and here's a question for you to wrestle with as we work through our text this morning, does that mean he is stripping himself of his glory? We're not there yet, but wrestle, have fun. 
Now, the first thing this incarnate word does, his first sign is that he turns water into wine at a wedding. And this sign is bubbling over with new creation themes and language. But John doesn't stop there in recounting the story of Jesus. Jesus heals the sick. He walks upon the waves, a move that demonstrates his absolute authority over creation. The people are fed while in the wilderness as Jesus multiplies a few morsels of food to feed thousands. The blind receive sight and the dead are raised. In other words, the brokenness that marks the fallen state of the old order is being overturned. And more, not only is he ushering in new creation, but he is demonstrating that this new creation project stretches beyond the borders of Israel. Remember, for God so loved the world. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And then in the very next chapter, in what Scott Stangley described as a watershed moment, if you remember that sermon, Jesus breaks with all tradition by extending the hope of the kingdom to a woman in Samaria. And at every single point, every time Jesus pulls back the curtain to reveal himself, the response of those who should have known better, of those who should have been expecting him, what does the text tell us? They did not receive him. They did not receive him. We saw this start to unfold when Jesus made his first public appearance at the Passover, when he cleansed the temple. And that continued throughout his earthly ministry, right? The religious leaders were mad at him because he healed a man on the Sabbath. They wanted to kill him because he identified God as his father. They were confused about his teaching um, about being the bread of life. And when he raised Lazarus from the dead, they not only wanted to kill Jesus, but they wanted to get rid of Lazarus as well. The point, and it's the point that we've belabored throughout the course of this series, the religious leaders wanted to maintain their authority and their power by any means necessary, by any means necessary. And their love and their, their, their love of authority and power is the thing that blinded them to the glory of God, so much so that even seeing a man raised from the dead couldn't convince them. And one of the primary reasons they were blinded to the glory of God is because like us, and, and that's important, right, because we need to make sure that we don't consider ourselves, uh, what's the word, more, more able to understand God than others. That's a grace that God has afforded us. If, if we're trying to wrestle with that, the only reason we see anything is because of God's amazing grace and the Holy Spirit opening our eyes. But the primary reason they were blinded to the glory of God, because like us, their perception of glory, of power, and of authority was shaped by the world around them. A world that looks at outward appearances and outward visions of victory and triumph. But see, new creation, it does something different. It casts a different vision, and its vision 
And, and it's a vision that was embedded in the first creation. It's, and, and it's a vision that marked out the very character of the triune God. And it's a vision we're going to wrestle with for the next, I don't know, 35 minutes or so. And that's the point of these 12 chapters. And really the entire gospel of John. And it actually lands us on very familiar ground. A people with front row seats to the miraculous signs of God who simply refuse to understand because it doesn't fit their vision of what this life ought to look, feel, and be like. Moses says it like this in Deuteronomy, and I have a, um, a, pass, a slide for this. You have seen all that the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Egypt. To Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land, the great trials that your eyes saw, the signs and those great wonders. But to this day, the Lord has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears. Did I just go off? Am I there? All right. Okay. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to John 12, 36. And the passage begins with the phrase, when Jesus had said these things. Now, to give a little bit of context because we looked at the previous passage back on Palm Sunday, which was a little bit of time ago. This is after the triumphal entry, and the things that Jesus had been talking about were, one, the judgment of this world. He was talking about how when the Son of Man is lifted up, and I want you to keep that language in your brain for the next few minutes, that the ruler of this world would be cast out and that all people would be drawn to him. And then he urged his listeners to believe. And this was the final word of his public ministry. As the text says, he hid himself from them. And this is where the story starts to pick up. Look at what it says in verses 37 through 38. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe. They still did not believe in him, so that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And so the first thing that pops out, right, what, what, is, what is happening here? John is pointing out that Jesus had performed numerous signs, numerous signs. Now, we know that John's purpose in recording these specific signs we read about was so that those of us sitting here might believe that Jesus is the Christ. But John also noted at the end of this book, at the end of the Gospel of John, that there are many other things that Jesus did. So many of them that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written if we were to record them all. And even the language in our passage it suggests that he had performed large quantities of signs and miracles right in front of them. And by them, John is referring to the religious leaders, but he's also talking about the countless people he encountered throughout the course of his earthly ministry. In other words, we read about seven signs in John's gospel, but John makes it clear that those seven were just the tip of the iceberg. It sounds actually that Jesus' ministry was marked by this sort of miraculous sign-performing events, right? It was all over the place. He was constantly performing miracles and signs, right? The word so many means so many, more than seven. And, and John makes it clear that, that if we wrote down everything he did, we can't contain it all. And so Jesus' earthly ministry is marked by the miraculous. It's marked by the miraculous. But even after seeing all of those signs, all of those miracles, the text says they still did not believe in him. 
And then John tells us the reason behind their unbelief. So that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. What John is communicating to us is that the unbelief that marked the people of Israel during Jesus' earthly ministry was an unbelief that was predetermined by God with a purpose in mind. Okay, it was predetermined by God with a purpose in mind. Now, this is a hard word, and we're starting to wade into some difficult theology, but stay with me here because there are two temptations when we read a passage like this. The first one is to disregard this kind of thing and simply explain it away. The reason we might do that is because anything that infringes on our will or our autonomy, it makes most of us uncomfortable, myself included. The second temptation is to lean way too hard into the sovereignty of God, which results in a fatalism, something that has been described in theological circles as hyper-Calvinism, that it doesn't matter what I do, God's going to do whatever he's going to do anyway. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. We don't have to tell people about Jesus. I don't even have to believe in Jesus. I don't have to do anything because God is going to make it happen. That's... That's not what the Bible teaches. But there's a third way, and I believe it's far more helpful. See, verse 38, it exists within a context. And part of that context is verse 37. And verse 37 says that they still did not believe in him. Or as one translation puts it, they refused to believe in him. In other words, verse 37 places the people in the driver's seat of their own unbelief. Catch that? It places the people in the driver's seat of their own unbelief, while verse 38 shows us that this was all a part of God's plan to fulfill the words of the prophet Isaiah. So I ask, is belief and faith a gift from God? The answer is a resounding yes. A resounding yes. That's why it's called grace. And that's such good news. But also, are we responsible to believe and put our faith in Christ? The answer is also a resounding yes. God's not looking for robots to love him and carry out his will. We are his children who love because he first loved us. Is that hard to fully grasp? Yes, 100%. What should I do as a result of this difficulty? Worship God. See, that's, that's, that's one thing that we have to be okay with. We have to be okay with tension in the word of God. We have to be okay when things start to go beyond our ability to fully comprehend. Because the truth of the matter is that God and the way he structures creation and the way he operates, it's beyond our scope. Now, he offers us his word, and, and we can understand so much about God, but there are things that, that just, they're going to go above our heads. And so what we have to do is simply respond, yes, Lord, and I love you, and I worship you. What that doesn't mean, it doesn't mean we don't wrestle, right? We need to wrestle with the text. We need to wrestle with these big theological categories, but we also must rest in the fact that there is mystery, and that this book is dripping with mystery. And sometimes we're not going to fully get it. And that's okay. That's okay. So hopefully, 
that relieves us of some stress and some pressure. Maybe it doesn't. Maybe you're one of the people that just need to know everything. And, and I, I want to break the news to you to, softly. You're not going to. You're not going to know everything. And that's okay. That's okay. Because if we were able to fully grasp God, he wouldn't be worthy of our worship. Right? He wouldn't be, like, like I'm not a mechanic, right? But I'm sure people who, who know engines, like, I'm sure people who, like, work on, like, huge engines, like, maybe even, like, electronic engines now and, like, you know, maybe, maybe battery-operated engine or electric cars, when you look at a lawnmower, you're probably not impressed anymore. I look at a lawnmower and I'm still like, whoa, look at that thing, right? Like, that's, that's wild. But, like, but for some of you, you're probably like, yeah, a lawnmower is like, it's, it's like a child's toy, right? Child's toys aren't worthy of, of our awe. They're just not. But some of you might be kind of in awe of how a Tesla functions. I don't know how they work. I don't get it. And maybe you guys are sitting there looking at me. Well, then you're an idiot. You should know. Um, anyway, <laughs> neither here nor there. But honestly, that's not really the point of this passage. But I had to cover it because it was there. I want to actually dig into these quotes from Isaiah. Because this is where the meat of our passage of, uh, it really starts to come to life. The first quote, it comes from Isaiah 53, 1. And what John is doing he's, is he's riffing off of what he just said, that they still did not believe in him. And so he quotes Isaiah, who is asking a question. Lord, who has believed what, we heard, what he heard from us, and to whom has the arm or the power of the Lord been revealed? And the answer to that question, based on what we saw play out throughout the course of Jesus' earthly ministry, his public ministry, is no one. No one. And by no one, that means the vast majority of the Jewish population following Jesus during those three years. They refused to believe in him. So, Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? Pretty much nobody. A really small group of people. A really small group of people. But then John says that, therefore, they could not believe because, again, Isaiah said, and this quote comes from Isaiah 6, verse 10, he has blinded their eyes and harden their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. Now, this gets into that predestination stuff again, and so we have both sides of the coin being represented. They refuse to believe, and God has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts. Both are at play here, but we can't stop there, and we can't simply just use this to put together our nice little theological package, because I think John wants us to dig deeper. If you're wondering, I'm really excited about this passage. There's a lot of really fun stuff going on here. And, and what is happening is not so much a battle between divine sovereignty and human responsibility, but rather there's a battle between light and darkness, between the old and the new, and between the ruler of this world and the king of kings. That's the battle at play here. We talked about this before. But any time a New Testament writer quotes the Old Testament, they want us to do more than just read the verse in isolation. Now, for the original readers, they would have been very familiar with the wider context of both of these passages. And the reason is because both of these passages are very significant. So Isaiah 53.1, it's taken from the fourth servant song of Isaiah, and it's a passage about what we have come to know as the suffering servant. The suffering servant. If you want to turn with me 
Turn with me to Isaiah 52, verse 13. If not, we also have a slide behind us. And I'm going to read to you this entire passage because I think it's that important. It starts like this. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up up and be exalted. And many were astonished at you. His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see and that which they have not heard they understand. Who has believed what he heard from us? This is where our passage comes in. And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Him being the servant that's being talked about. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. And like a sheep that before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, and they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. For by his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Now, how many of you heard that passage before? Familiar, right? And if you haven't, you'll notice, though, there's some really familiar themes there. right? The familiar themes of, of, of someone dying in place of someone else, of, of someone bearing the sins of another. I mean, this is so obviously talking about a savior of sorts. But also the other things that I think are so important about this passage, it says that he was marred beyond human semblance. His form was beyond that of the children of mankind. No form or majesty that we should look at him. No beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, as one from whom men hide their faces. Like, honestly, like this just popped in my head, but I'm reminded of sloth from the Goonies. Right? Like, that's what just like literally popped into my brain. It's like, there's nothing about this guy. Men hide their faces from him. They're like, whoa, I don't want to see him. It's, it's disgusting. Like, no, 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 don't look. Isaiah wants us to understand that this servant wouldn't even be allowed in a truck stop bathroom. 
That's what Isaiah is trying to paint a picture for us, okay? Right? That's the language that's being used. Check this out. Turn with me to Isaiah 6. Because this is where the other quote comes from. And I'm going to read to you the first seven verses. And, and, and just to give you a little bit of context, this is, this is when Isaiah is being called into ministry. And before he's called into ministry, he is taken up into the presence of God. And he's in the throne room. He's in the temple. And this is what happened. It says this in, in chapter 6, verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up. Does that language sound familiar, anybody? High and lifted up? Okay. Keep it in your brain. And the train of his robe, it filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips. I am lost. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth. And he said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sins atoned for. A couple things. To talk about the end of that passage really quick, atonement is, is also discussed in this passage. Similar to Isaiah 53, right? Both talk about atonement. Both talk about sins being forgiven. Only this one, the heavenly temple, can't even contain the Lord. The train of his robe fills the space, right? Like, like so, so, so you're looking at like, like maybe like, like his shoes, like, that's how much space he's taking up. And, and, these, and then there are these seraphim who are just praising him over and over. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And then the text tells us that the ground was shaking and the house was filling with smoke. But also notice, and if you remember, I brought it up, the whole high and lifted up stuff, right? That shows up in Isaiah 53. It shows up in Isaiah 6. And guess what? It shows up in John 12 also. Hint, hint. The point of Isaiah 6 is that the glory of God is beyond comprehension. The glory of God is beyond comprehension. Now, let's look back at John 12. And in verse 41, it says this. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. He said both of those things, Isaiah 53 and Isaiah 6, because he saw and spoke of his glory. He saw his glory and he spoke of him. And what he saw and spoke of in both of those visions was the glory of King Jesus. Okay? That's what's happening here. That's what John wants us to understand as he's articulating this, this event. Both of these scenarios are portraits of Christ. Both of these scenarios are portraits of Christ. Jesus was the one in the year that King Uzziah died that was in the throne room, high and lifted up, when Isaiah was brought there. He's the guy, Jesus, that's Jesus, 
right? And in Isaiah 53, he's also the suffering servant who was high and lifted up, who we wouldn't let into a truck stop bathroom. And so the question that we need to wrestle with is, what is it? What is it? Now, I really don't want us to miss this because it is so massively important. I want to quote a New Testament scholar, Jonathan Lett, and he says it like this. Isaiah's visions of Jesus' glory in the temple and the figure of the servant forces the reader to reconcile these seemingly contrasting images of Jesus as dishonored and disfigured servant and as the holy Lord enthroned in his heavenly temple, which means we must not only say that John includes Jesus's crucifixion within the parameters of God's glory, but also, and this is the crucial point, and it's the point I've been making for the last number of months as we've been working our way through this book, that Jesus's humiliating execution on the cross expresses the very essence of God's glory. Just tracking with that? That him being marred beyond comprehension, him being broken on a cross, lifted up, as John describes, on a cross, is the very essence of his glory. The cross is the very essence of the glory of God. He also says this. I have another slide. The glory that overwhelmed Isaiah, that cannot be contained by the world, let alone a temple, has the definitive character of lowliness. This is the whole, he's a lion, no, he's a lamb motif that John speaks of in the book of Revelation. And it's the reason, and this is where our text starts to make sense, it's the reason why the people of Israel the religious leaders, and all of humanity, including all of us, are incapable of believing in him. Because the kingdom vision of glory and victory are in the shape of a cross. The kingdom vision of glory and victory are in the shape of a cross. That runs contrary to every single thing that we are taught everything. We don't buy this. We don't actually believe this. We say we believe it. We're striving to move towards it. But in our heart of hearts, we question this. Why? Because it breaks with everything we are. Because the air we breathe is that fallen air where Adam sees something he wants and he takes it. He doesn't deny himself. He doesn't die to self. And so that's what we are just like indoctrinated with. And it's not just out there. It's the church as well. We've, we've fallen prey to this. But this is why we have to wrestle. This is why we have to fight. It's why we have to challenge ourselves to not put our hope in our bank accounts, in our group or our class or in political leaders who promise to give a voice or prominence to the church and Christianity. Our hope has to be in Jesus and his glory. It shines the brightest when it is carrying a cross. 
His glory shines the brightest when it is carrying a cross. And that means it shines the brightest through us when we are bearing our crosses. You tracking with this? Is this making sense? This blew my mind when, when I saw, and, and I had a lot of help from that guy Jonathan Lett, that New Testament scholar, but when, when he puts these two Isaiah passages side by side, the suffering servant and the glory that Isaiah sees in his temple vision, those don't fit in our brains. But God says, yes, high and lifted up, is my son Jesus on a cross. Glory is my son Jesus on a cross. And, and guess what, right? When he returns, you know what he still has in his hands and his feet and his side? The scars. He still has the scars. And, and, and in, in the book of Revelation, when, when John is, is laying his eyes on the heavenly and ascended Christ, he's laying his eyes on one who was as a lamb that had been slain. Jesus doesn't puff his chest. He never does. That's not the story of our Bibles. That's not what the New Testament teaches. Because he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He did not exploit his godness for his own sake. Guys, that's good news. Like, that's really, really good news. Check this out. Let's keep reading because I can keep going and we're gonna. It says in verse 42, John 12, Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it why? So that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Did, did you catch that? Some of them believed in him, but they were afraid to confess it. Why? Because they didn't want to lose their way of life. That's what, we talked about this a few number of weeks back. Getting put out of the synagogue means being cut off from all social, economic, religious community. To confess Christ for these guys was to lose everything. And it's because they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Now, we can, we can wrestle here, right? Because I think that glory that comes from man, it's everything we just talked about. It's, it's power, it's status, it's reputation, money, comfort, security. And all of those things, they really do make life easier, Right? Do they not? Let's not pretend. Let's not pretend. But the glory that comes from God, that's the pain and loss that we experience when we stand up for righteousness. It's the rejection we face when we hold to our convictions. It's the embarrassment we sense when we say no to the weapons of the enemy. But it's also the joy we feel when we give of ourselves for those around us. When we lay down our rights so that others might be lifted up. The good life, or as the Beatitudes of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount called the blessed life, 
is an existence that is marked by mutual submission, self-giving love, and radical generosity. And that's what marks out holiness and righteousness. That's what marks out holiness and righteousness. And, and every one of us knows it. It really is better to give than to receive. We, we know it because we've experienced it. Not only does the Bible tell us that it's more blessed to give than to receive, but every single one of us has experienced that. We've all experienced it. And so we know that that's the true story of the world, even though our flesh and everything out there pounds against it. But we know. We know because we've actually practiced it. And this is what marks out the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God. That's what this whole book of John is about. New creation. When we say new creation, we're saying kingdom of God. They're synonymous. They go hand in hand. And the kingdom of God, the new creation, it's marked by the very thing that Adam and Eve fumbled at in the garden. Giving of ourselves so that others might go free. Because that's what Jesus did for us. He paints a picture so clear, silent before his accusers, laying his life down, not fighting battles for, for no reason, just continuing to just proclaim the goodness of God, the kingdom of heaven, giving of himself, feeding the poor, caring for the broken, caring for the needy. It's like you read the gospels and it's just like, whoa, man, Jesus was Whoa, wild guy. He just kept on giving of himself. But you know what else he did? He also spent that time to be with God. He would retreat. He would retreat. And he would do more offering, only he would offer time and space so that God, his father, would shape and mold him and, and, and energize him and, and fill him with his spirit. Right? And so it's this both-end thing that happens. But Jesus never takes. He doesn't take. He just gives. He gives and he receives from the Father. He gives and he receives from the Father. And that's the pattern that God is calling us to. To give of ourselves and receive from the Father. And I am preaching way aspirationally right now. Like way aspirationally because I don't do this very well. And, and the secret is, is most of us don't. But God's grace is so good. It's so good because, because he moves towards us in the midst of this stuff when we're struggling, when we're wrestling. That's what's so good about being a child of God. Whereas kids, and, and, and as we were singing this morning, and as Jim talked about, nothing's separating us from the love of the Father. It's not going to happen. right? And that's just such good news for us. But he's calling us to dig deeper into our walk with him. Not because he's like this cosmic killjoy, right? And we talked about this a few weeks back. It's, it's this idea of, of, like, we many of us, I think, have been raised in traditions where it's like, you can't do this, 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 and I'm not done, right? Because you can't do this, 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 and don't forget that thing, and... And also, there's that other group of things that you can't do, right? And we've, we've been raised in this sort of culture. But, but what, what, what God is saying, he's saying, oh, but let me tell you all the things you can do. Let me give you this smorgasbord of, of fulfillment. And he's saying, 
You know what, you know what it consists of? You know what the meal consists of? Of giving of ourselves so that others might go free. And you know what happens? You know what the Bible tells us? It says, blessed are those who give. Right? Whoa, that doesn't make sense. It goes against everything that this world teaches us. But that is what the kingdom of God is marked out by. And that's good news. You know what else? It's, it's not just good news for us, but it's good news for the world. If we're doing that, then we, the church, we become a blessing to the world around us. Right? If we are just constantly posturing ourselves and giving and loving and serving others and, and, and showing the world what God is like, then the world is blessed by that. Our neighbors are blessed by that. And so it's this thing that just multiplies. It just gets bigger and bigger. It's, it's, it's the kingdom of God, right? It starts out with this little mustard seed, and, and it just gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. All right, let me think you got getting excited. Let's, let's look at how John closes out this book of signs. Verse 44. It says, And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me, Believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. I love this. When we believe in Christ, the text says, we also get the Father. Okay? When we believe in Christ, we also get the Father. And in believing in him, the text also says that we're freed from the darkness. That means we are given eyes to see. And those of us who have eyes to see, what John wants us to look at and take notice of are the lies that are scattered about like landmines all over this world of darkness. They are the lies that the religious leaders believed, the lies that our own culture preaches to us, the lies that promise a peace and salvation that can only come from God. That's what every lie promises you. It promises you the peace and salvation that can only come from God. And then when you partake of that lie, well, let me ask you, when you partake of that lie, do you experience peace and salvation or do you experience misery? You experience misery. Because the lies don't deliver. They just don't deliver. They look as though they might, but they don't. They don't. And we all know from experience they don't deliver. It's the same story from the very beginning. God offered both Adam and Eve all things. Take of any fruit of the tree. There's one I just don't want to eat from. Just one. But you can have everything but they chose the glory that comes from man rather than the glory of denying themselves and when we are no longer walking in darkness we are able to see that in denying ourselves we are actually receiving from God that's the paradigm that's how it works denying ourselves we receive from God but then then there's more Verse 47, if anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. 
For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. If you notice, he's revisiting a number of themes from, from the first 12 chapters of the Gospel of John. He's revisiting a number of themes. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak, and I know that his commandment is eternal life. I actually love that, like that wording. I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. So the reason Jesus came into the world was to save the world. And the world... It refers to all of humanity, every tribe, every tongue, every nation. But his message of salvation, his message of the kingdom, it's the very message by which those who reject him will be judged. It's the very message that will inflict judgment upon those who reject him. But Jesus does offer eternal life. And this is not only the hope of the Son but it's also the desire of the Father because Jesus doesn't say anything that the Father does not command him to say. And so when Jesus says that he desires that we might know him, that we might have eternal life, that's the heartbeat of the Father as well. That's good news. And I don't know if everyone fully grasps that, I don't know if everyone fully understands that the heartbeat of the triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit is your salvation. That's good news. We don't believe that, that the God of the Old Testament is the wrathful God and the God of the New Testament is the kind God. Like We don't believe that. God is God, the same yesterday, today, and forever. And the heartbeat of the triune God is your salvation. Now the purpose of Jesus' earthly ministry, all of the signs and miracles that he performed, it was twofold. First, it was to reveal to the world the nature and character of God. Right? Jesus said, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. A God who is all-powerful and all-knowing, while at the very same time, a God who is marked by self-giving love and humility, a God marked by the cross. Second, so that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that those of us who believe our sins are forgiven, we are granted eternal life, and our eyes are opened to the reality of this world, that it is truly more blessed to give than to receive. Redeemer Fellowship, this is good news. This is good news. This is the best news. And the question we need to wrestle with is the same question that Jesus posed to either Mary or Martha. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? See, what Jesus offers is something that is entirely other. It's otherworldly. It bucks against everything that this world offers us. It bucks against the political left. It bucks against the political right. It's not an American thing, nor is it a European thing. 
It's not a Western thing. It's not an Eastern thing. It isn't a white thing, nor is it a black thing. What Jesus offers is a heavenly thing. And as we submit ourselves to Jesus, the heavenly starts to infiltrate and permeate this world, which is where the entire new creation project is heading. And when we get there, when we arrive, we will hear of this lion of Judah. But when we gaze upon him with unveiled faces, we will see a lamb standing as though it had been slain. This is good, good news. And it's the sort of news that we are called to proclaim and live in light of. That's what Jesus asks of us. Let me pray. Father in heaven, Lord, I love this story so much. And Lord, I love that it is the true story of the world. Father, I pray for us, God. I pray for myself. I pray for everyone in this church, Lord God. Shape and form us by your cross, Lord God. Lord, help us to share together in the life of Christ. Help us to embody the self-giving, humble love and mercy of Almighty God, of King Jesus, Lord. Help us, Lord. Help us to recognize that true power comes when we die to ourselves when we give of ourselves. God, I beg that of you, Lord God. And Father, I pray for anyone here, Lord, who does not know you, that today would be the day of salvation, Father. I pray that your spirit would be poured out upon this place, God. We love you with all of our hearts. We thank you for the cross, for the resurrection, and that Jesus is seated at your right hand, ruling over creation. It's in his name we pray. Amen.